1: Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long.
2: feel like who art ed. Who art it? Mr. Wood, art ed me. Either way, it works I know. That's a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and today I am very excited and going to try not to geek out too much because my guest is an art teacher I have been listening to and learning from for more years than I would like to admit that I've been around. Um, my guest today is Timothy Bogats from the Art of Ed University, Art of Ed Radio. Um, thank you very much for taking the time to join me. Well, thank you for the invite, Kyle. Uh, I've been listening to your show
3: for a while now, too. Uh, I am I love it, and I'm super excited to finally be able to join you. So, like I said, I, I appreciate the invite.
2: Oh, thank you very much. And today, I appreciate your flexibility. Um, we're going to be talking about Christo and Jean-Claude, who I have been wanting to talk with someone about for so long, just because their story and their artwork is so interesting to me on a number of dimensions. So Christo and Jean-Claude, first off, right off the bat, born on the same day, June 13th, 1935. Um, Jean-Claude seems to have been a little bit of a military brat. She moved around going to school in Morocco, France, Switzerland, Tunisia. I mean, quite the life right from the the get-go. And apparently she wanted to continue seeing the world. She got her bachelor's, she studied like Latin and philosophy, um, and then she went on to train to be a flight attendant with Air France. While all of that's happening, Christo's mother recognized that he was a talent from a young age, and she started him in art lessons at like age six. He continued studying art. He went to the National Academy of Art in Sofia. Um, he studied painting, drawing, architecture, kind of the traditional fine arts. And I guess his mother had actually worked at that school as a secretary. So like he had an in almost from birth. Um, his father had worked in textiles. So really in both avenues, he was kind of going into the family business. Right. And I've always been like fascinated by his upbringing because,
3: you know, it just sort of marries those two things that, you know, he went on to do between art and just fabric. Uh, You know, I I love thinking about, you know, this has been his whole life and you always have to wonder, like, whether that development uh, as a young kid, like how much that influenced his, his later work. That's always fascinating
2: for me to think about. Oh, absolutely. And that's why I always start with the context, because it's like that biographical information. I love seeing how these threads and these seeds that are planted early on in someone's life just bears out later on in their work. Um, And so Christo really interesting life as i said an exciting character like this is the kind of thing from a movie 1957 he bribes a railroad employee who sealed him up in a freight car and he goes to make his way to vienna and while he's in vienna he he goes to the art school um Vienna's Academy of Fine Art. He supports himself doing odd jobs, washing dishes. And I guess he felt like painting classical portraits was kind of on that same level of something he will do to pay the bills, but he wasn't too thrilled about it because he did not sign his name, Christo, on them. He would sign like his family name. Uh, I guess he was embarrassed to be doing stuff that wasn't so creative, just the technical arts, but had no problem sullying his family name and putting that on there. (laughs) The the gig economy was alive and well in the mid-20th century. But that actually led to something that was pivotal in his life, aside from where he was getting into Vienna and eventually making his way to France. While he was doing those gigs painting portraits, that's how he met Jean Claude. Um, he was he was basically hired to paint a portrait of her mother, and I have read accounts that indicate he was a little bit more interested in in her sister. Right from the get go, right Interesting. when they met. Now I was not familiar
3: with that because, like, I I knew about you know the idea that he met Jean Claude when he was doing the, the family portrait. I've always thought, wow, that is really serendipitous and like that's a good love story. But now you're throwing a wrench into that with the the idea that he's more interested
2: in the sister. I have I, no I, idea. I, well, that and to admit that seems right. Like <laughs> not not a bright move, but <laughs> yeah, I. I saw that somewhere in an interview. And, you know, the love story between Christo and Jean Claude, I have always found to be absolutely beautiful because they meet serendipitously as he's painting a portrait of her mother. And it sounds like it was kind of fairy tale love at first sight. I mean, she says, like I said, she studied Latin and philosophy. She was going to be a flight attendant and fly around the world. But, She got into the arts because Christo was into the arts and because and, you know, setting aside the problematic feminist lens perspective on all of that, Mm. um, just the idea that she loved him in such a way that she wanted to be working with him professionally as well as um, in that in that romantic relationship and that he loved her and was so dedicated to her. He continued to bring the arts that they planned together into the world years after, after she passed away. I mean, they both seem to have been very devoted to each other.
3: Oh, absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, that creativity that comes from collaboration, you know, they had that at a level that, you know, I can only imagine just, you know, them playing back and forth with ideas, just listening to them talk about how they collaborate, how they work together. You know, it was just like a match made in heaven, both with the love story, but also with the, the creativity and all of the art uh, that came from it as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And with that, that idea, like you said, that they're bouncing ideas off of each other. They were working with other people as well and learning from other people. Um, one of the things I've seen as influential in in their development was 1958. Christo's going to the World's Fair in Brussels. He sees the American avant garde art scene there, and. 1961 is kind of when they got the first solo exhibition. Um, This was a bunch of like dockside packages. We see him wrapping things in fabric at that time, but it's sort of smaller objects. And I guess, you know... Because everybody in the art world seems to know each other. He's going to, like, Eve Klein's apartment and wrapping human beings. Um, But then he realized, like, fashion designers have kind of covered that ground. So he's looking for other stuff. And that's where he and Jean-Claude got the idea of wrapping buildings.
3: Okay, before we dive into the wrapping public buildings, can can we talk about Eve's Klein for just a minute? Because he fascinates me. Um, like, have you... I could
2: talk about Klein for you know? There's a lot. To, to... I
3: know. I you haven't done an episode on him, have you? I don't know. I'll have so. to have you back at some point. Oh man, I would love to. Um, but yeah, just the the things that I always talk to my students about with Eve's Klein. Uh, he invented his own color international Klein blue like invented it and named it after himself it's a beautiful blue by the
2: way it is a gorgeous blue uh he is
3: a judo master like fourth or fifth degree black belt in judo he literally wrote a book on judo he was convinced
2: uh, he could fly
3: by the yes. force of his own will. Yes. He's got an entire photograph <laughs> documenting it called Leap Into the Void, yeah. which is also fascinating. And then uh, he wrote the Monotone Symphony, which was 20 minutes of a single note followed by 20 minutes of silence. And that's his entire symphony. Like, the guy is just – he's fascinating with, with what he came up with.
2: And I – I still can't decide if I find him fascinating or insufferable.
1: Mm, yeah. I think
2: to read about is fascinating, but it, I think if I met him, I would have a hard time.
3: <laughs> yeah. If I can just admire international client blue from a distance and, and never have to talk to him, I think that's the ideal situation.
2: Yeah. I mean, it is a gorgeous blue though. I, in all fairness, absolutely gorgeous. Um, and the world needs good blue pigments. Absolutely. So, all right, let's, let's so, go back
3: to Christo yeah, back, and Jean-Claude.
2: Back to our main subject. So one of the things Christo and Jean-Claude are known for is the wrapping of the buildings. I mean, they do these monumental installations, or I guess they did. Um, these monumental installations wrapping the Reichstag, uh, wrapping islands, you know, the coast of an island wrapped in fabric uh one of the one of the largest pieces or one of the latest pieces the two of them realized together was the gates in New York yes um that was what 2005 i want to yeah. say
3: yeah 2005 in New York
2: City yep and you know a lot of what they're doing is just transforming a space and i always find it really interesting because they're playing with It's public art that's sort of forced on the public. I mean, you wrap a building that people, whether they want to or not, have to interact with that. And it kind of – I mean, that's the intention behind it, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, I I find some problematic aspects to that. But I'll I'll get into – we'll get into that stuff later. Uh, I think one of the last bits that I want to share in terms of like – context and everything to understand them and and their development process, they took this stance that they did not want to be sort of beholden to outside interest groups or donors or anything like that. So they did not fund these giant art pieces through grants or anything else like that they used their own money what what they mm-hmm. would do is christo would make drawings of th- what they planned to do and then they would sell those drawings for millions of dollars i i wish i had the means to do that but uh, <laughs> right. you know I, apparently people are willing to to pay Christo for his his doodles on top of a, a photograph. Um, yeah, well,
3: and I mean, like if I had the money, I absolutely would would do that because not only are you receiving an original artwork from Christo, um, but you're helping to fund like the the project that's upcoming. So I, I really love the idea. but like you said, it's just it's a brilliant way not only to to make money. But also to be able to fight for your artistic vision. You don't even have to fight for it. You have this clear vision of what you want. Like you said, you're not beholden to anyone else. And being able to fund everything yourself really allows them to to follow through on the vision that they have.
2: Yes. Although they did often have a fight to to do it. Um, Mm -hmm. The... The process also would involve setting up a corporation for every one of these massive installations so that um, they would have a staff who were doing the environmental impact studies and all of that stuff that is not nearly as fun to look at or talk about, but I think is worth acknowledging because it is an important part of what they did.
1: The sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.
2: They're making art that's out into the world, and they did give thought to the impact on the world. So the materials were industrially recycled afterwards. Um, They did do their due diligence. They did the research to make sure that they are not destructive. Because when I think about fabric floating around an island, I think of all of those poor sea creatures but apparently they did too and they had teams of professionals who were thinking about that and I think it's important to be mindful of that there is controversy around it but I think they did the best they could to mitigate the risks involved yeah, with and it and
3: like you said they they have teams cuz I'm thinking of the uh the pink wrapped islands mm-hmm. that like uh from Miami and I don't remember exactly what that's called i apologize but i know they you know they wrapped like 11 different islands with this pink fabric which is absolutely gorgeous but you know they had a team of marine biologists making sure that there is not you know an environmental impact uh they had you know those biologists and their crews also cleaning up the islands, like all of the, this trash, all of this debris, uh, you know, the engineers, the construction crews, part of their job was to clean up the environment. They're trying to to leave things even better than they found them. And this was way back in what, like 1983, yeah. I think that was made. And so, yeah. you know, 40 years ago, they were, they were worried about the environment. And so I think that's something important to to bring up just sharing that that they were conscious of all of these things for as long as they've been working
2: yeah because it, it is an important piece of it I mean you know I I don't think they're quite Andy Goldsworthy with the the right. you know the way that they interact with the environment but they're not Exxon either you know yeah. they they yeah. definitely were mindful and trying to do their best with what they they could Um And I think since we kind of were talking about the islands being wrapped, that probably is as good a segue as we're going to find to this piece we're looking at, specifically the Floating Piers. Now, this one was an installation in 2016. Um, June 18th through July 23rd, Christo and his assistants used 100,000 square meters of this bright yellow, almost gold fabric to transform Lake Isseo, Isseo in Italy. And basically what they did was they put this fabric on top of um, polystyrene cubes. So it became this floating bridge. It's like just at the surface of the water so that people could walk, have that sensation of walking on water. I mean, as you step from what, what I understand, it would sink a little bit. The water would get on, like your feet would get wet. The fabric would, would get wet and, and it would move with the, the undulating water. Um, Estimates are somewhere between 72,000 and 100,000 people a day went to this. So like 1.2 million people over those 16 days got to walk on water and have this bridge connecting a small island to the mainland. So now I would like to give you the opportunity to share your thoughts, your reactions. What do you see in this piece? What's jumping out at you?
3: Well, I'm I'm fascinated by the piece and by the experience, I guess, as well. Like we we talked about the islands that, that were wrapped previously, but that was only a visual experience. And I think to be able to turn this into more of a, a tactile or more of a physical experience, I think it's something that conceptually is really impressive. Um, and you know, I I love the fact that they just kind of sat on this idea for like 45 years, because I think uh, 1970 uh, was when they first came up with this. And, you know, it, it wasn't realized until 2016, which I think is incredible uh, that they spent that much time or or were willing to come back to it after that long. But uh, visually, like I said, it, it's striking because it stands out from the... The water, the bright yellow fabric, it creates this incredible contrast, not only with the water, but with the hills, with the mountains surrounding it, um, you know, it's somewhat a little bit drab, I guess, as a landscape. Uh, but then when you have this this bright uh, fabric standing out from it, it really emphasizes the line, really emphasizes the color. And you can really dive into to thinking about uh, those contrasts. But yet at the same time, somehow it looks like a natural part of the lake. Like it just seems like it's always been there, which... I I think is, again, absolutely fascinating visually. And so just being able to, to see all of that, how it contrasts but blends in at the same time, I think is is like a work of magic and like i said being able to experience that both uh visually like from the outside i know this is surrounded by mountains and hills and so just thinking about all the different angles all the different views you would be able to see from this uh you know i i would love to experience that but then as you described so perfectly just the the ability to walk on this experience it physically and just kind of see what it's all about Like you're literally walking on water you're walking in the middle of a lake and i think that creates a very unique experience and like you said uh, earlier they the public really doesn't have a choice here they, you know this is this is forced on them uh but I think looking at it, experiencing it uh, is going to be a positive experience for, for almost anyone who uh, is lucky enough to, to be a part of it there. So anyway, uh, I'm not sure which of those things you want to respond to because I talked a lot. But there's uh, there's a lot of exciting stuff happening in this work.
2: There's a lot in there. And I, I think... Um... You covered so many of the things that I was thinking of, too. You know, the the contrast between the yellow and the water. I mean, it we're talking near opposites. It's practically a complementary color scheme there. Mm-hmm. And that does create this visual shock as you see it right off the bat. Even before you've touched it, you get this sense that the landscape is transformed. And I think it's not just the color scheme. But as you said, it's surrounded by water and mountains and trees. It's this natural environment. But that gold element is clearly artificial. It is so hard edged and geometric. I mean, the fabric around that tiny island, it's, it's like a, a rectangle around it. It changes the silhouette from an organic shape to a geometric one. And the land bridge is straight lines as a pathway. Um, and I, I think one of the things that I go back and forth on as I look at this, because the experience of it to me sounds so magical. And like that's the most exciting part to me is the way it makes the world a magical place for a little while. It's a little bit surreal. It's, it feels like wish fulfillment to some extent. But I wonder how different would the experience be if that fabric were camouflaged? I wonder about the sensation if, if I couldn't see the bridge, if I looked down and that fabric matched the water right and then you feel
3: yourself sinking ever so slightly with each step you take like yeah, that, that would be fascinating and disconcerting i'm not sure not sure what that experience
2: would be like yeah i think some people would find it horrifying and others exhilarating but yeah. um that's the one thing that i i kept thinking about because the thing about christo's work in my mind is they i guess Christo and Jean-Claude, I mean, this was the first piece. This was the first really large piece that Christo completed after Jean-Claude had passed away. Um, And I still would credit the two of them for this piece, because Mm -hmm. as as you had mentioned, you know, the two of them came up with it together back in the 70s, and he was just able to bring it to life later on. But I really I really wonder about like a a big part of their work was all about creating this barrier and this intrusion into a space to make you rethink the role of the arts and society and all of these things coming together and how we interact with them. But I just really I really wish with this one it could have been camouflaged. That's like the one note I'd have for them and I'm sure I'm sure they would really care about my opinion yeah, on that possibly
3: um, <laughs> I I gotta say that like I disagree like I think you know from an experiential lens like I think it would be more fun to take that walk on camouflage. But visually, like, this works for me. This, this screams Christo and Jean-Claude to me. I feel like it fits in with, with everything else they've done. And, you know, I, I think the thing I maybe love most about it is that contrast that we talked about, that, that yellow laying so nicely on the surface of the water, but yet standing out so brilliantly. And so I, I think, although camouflage could be fun, I'm, I'm sticking with the yellow on this one.
2: That's fair enough. I I I would definitely agree. It does fit in with their their style over you know the course of their their body of work. I mean, that is a choice that clearly is in line with the way that they have done things. I guess I'm I'm giving away all, all of my position here. I generally don't like the aesthetics. I don't <laughs> like the look of of their stuff. I find the concepts interesting. I find the experience of it interesting. But I'm not a fan of the look of a lot of it. Is this why you would not be buying drawings from Christo? Um, it's, it's one of the reasons. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, that and I don't think my bank would cover the check yeah, for fair, me. Fair. You know? Yeah, fair, <laughs> <laughs> Anything else you want to say about this one? No,
3: I don't think so. Can I share a story really quickly, though? Always. Okay. So uh, I live in Omaha, and I was lucky enough to see a talk that Christo and Jean-Claude gave in 2007, 2008, just a year or two before Jean-Claude uh, passed away. And uh, They came to a uh, contemporary art gallery that we have here in Omaha. And uh, I was able to go see them it was a brilliant talk loved going through all their work uh and just thinking about you know Christo completing this posthumously like after uh Jean-Claude had passed and you know that was one of the things that they had talked about you know someone had asked them in the Q&A portion you know what how long are you going to keep doing this and they both said oh we're going to keep doing it forever Uh, You know, even if one of us dies, one of us passes away, the the other has plans to complete a lot of our work to keep working on these things. And so, you know, even uh, though they were were separated by death, they're still in a lot of sense collaborating and, you know, putting these things together, which I I think is uh, a wonderful thing. And, you know, we I'm hoping to see even more um, of their ideas come to life if it's possible, which I'm not sure that it is at this point anymore. More, but uh just that fascinating concept of them continuing to to work together after death i think is a lovely story and and makes for uh, a good background to these pieces
2: yeah absolutely and i do believe it is possible for more of their work to be realized even though both have passed away after christo passed away um people wrapped the arc de triomphe Arc de Triomphe yeah. in, um In France In his honor I think it was like A year after he had passed But um, You know Christo Jean-Claude And Tupac Still coming out With stuff Long <laughs> after They've passed away I'm wrapping it up I want a Just a three point Rating scale And four. Where should this hang The Louvre Is this something To look at The Lab, the lab. Is this something To learn from
1: or the
2: Louvre, British for that. Yeah, yeah. there's a
3: the joke in there somewhere. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. Okay, so as soon as you hit me up with the Christo and Jean Claude topic, I started thinking about this, <laughs> um, and I really want to say the Louvre because it's fan- just it's great work and it's up in the upper echelon for me of contemporary art. But I'm gonna say it belongs in the lab. And this goes back to our conversation about the work being forced on the public. And I think we can look at that as a learning opportunity. And because when these huge works are created, uh, they cross over from the art world into Popular culture into the news, like it is a worldwide news article when the Arc de Triomphe gets wrapped, and so I think it gives an opportunity for people who don't know about art, who haven't experienced a lot of this art, to learn uh, about Christo, about Jean Claude, and about whatever may develop from from there. And so I think, uh, given those opportunities, given the scale of attention that their pieces get. I, I think this is, like I said, a, a perfect chance for people to learn from them. So I'm going to say that uh, this belongs in the lab.
2: Interesting. Um, I, I always try to find a way to disagree with people, but that's really <laughs> hard to disagree with. Um, since you have covered the, the Louvre and the lab, I'm going to make the case for the Louvre. Oh, um, this hurts before I even hear. It, this hurts me, but go on. And and I don't mean that necessarily in the insulting of the artwork. You know, um, <laughs> this is a waste. But I think of the. I think I, I think this category can also be used to describe pieces that don't need to be around forever. For pieces that are are ephemeral and that we're okay with letting go of, you know? I think this piece, like all of Christo's work, is great for a moment, but it would would wear thin if it were to be a permanent installation. And so I think the fact that it will be disassembled, that it will come down, and that it will change the environment for a period, and then it's— and then it's a memory, and it's documented, and we know it happened, but we don't see it and experience it constantly. I think that's a part of the work. And so for that reason, I'm going to throw it in the loo. All right. That's fair. You you make a very good argument for it. So I can accept that. I was raised by a lawyer. I'm trained in making good arguments, <laughs> whether I agree with them or not. Um, but... I do want to. I do want to wrap this up by just saying once again, thank you so much. This is a surreal experience for me, getting to actually sit down and talk to an educator that I have looked up to and learned from for years. Thank you very much, uh, Tim Bogats, once again, from the Art of Ed uh, University, and your podcast has certainly helped me. And I, I cannot imagine how many other art teachers have learned from you over the years. So thank you for all you do. All right. Thank you, Kyle. I appreciate the kind words, of course, and uh,
3: I really enjoyed this conversation. So I very much appreciate the invite as well. And uh, if we can ever do this again, I would love to come back.
2: Oh, you are always welcome. Thank you very much.